Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to The Soul of the Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. This week on The Soul of the Nation, we welcome Matthew D. Taylor, a scholar at the Institute for Islamic, Christian, and Jewish Studies in Baltimore. Part of the reason that things got so out of hand in that season between the 2020 election and January 6th is that Trump's people were mobilizing, Trump's people were showing up in the streets, and there weren't really that many counter-protesters. There weren't people standing up for American democracy in the streets. And I fear, and I, I predict that we will need to get there this year. We will need to be ready to stand in the streets, to stand for democracy, to stand for the rule of law, to stand for American pluralism and say, we're better than this as a nation. His forthcoming book, The Violent Take It By Force, tracks the Christian leaders who helped initiate the Capitol riot. He has also done extensive work tracing a Christian network with deep ties to with deep ties to Republican Speaker of the House of Representatives, Mike Johnson. Matthew, welcome to the soul of the nation. Good to have you today. Thank you, Jim. It is, it is truly an honor to be here. And I'll just say, if I could have told my 25-year-old self when I was reading your book, God's Politics, uh, that, that I would get a chance to talk to you on your podcast, I, I would have been thrilled. Well, we've had some connection now at the Academy, American Academy of Religion and other places, and we're going to have more contact. I, I really am looking forward to your book coming out in the fall. It's very timely and, and uh, necessary for a time like this. But let me ask you an initial question, which is, Matthew, how is your spirit? How is your spirit these days? I would think I would characterize my spirit as troubled these days. Uh, I I spent the last three years immersing myself in the data of January 6th and the Capitol riot. I mean, that's that's just been my, my research, and it's, it's a pretty dark <laughs> research area, frankly. And um, I am... Entering into 2024 with a great deal of trepidation, I think we are um, walking into a very dangerous season in our democracy, in our nation, in our culture. And um, I feel like I'm on the front lines of observing some of the the worst elements of our, our society right now. Yeah, well, we're both on the front lines of that struggle. And I'm a lot older than you. And I want to say what you just said is true. Uh, more danger than really any time in, in my lifetime. And I think it goes back to the Civil War time, and this could spark another civil war. So help us understand what you've been learning from your extensive research research on all of this. So you've been tracking the movement among conservative Christians called the New Apostolic Reformation. You call it the most influential Christian phenomenon that you have either, I'm sorry, the most influential Christian phenomenon that you have either have, I'm speaking to our readers here, the most influential Christian phenomenon that you either haven't heard of or don't understand. What is the new apostolic reformation? How did it start? And why is it so important to our understanding now of what happened in this country on January 6, 2021? The New Apostolic Reformation is, uh, it's a movement. Um, it's its really a, a sort of network of networks, um, a set of leadership networks. The, the term New Apostolic Reformation was coined in the mid-1990s, um, and it was really embraced by a, a, a 
seminary professor named C. Peter Wagner. He was at Fuller Seminary, which is actually my alma mater. I, I, did, I never um, overlapped with Peter Wagner, but um, I definitely caught the edges of his influence um, at Fuller. Um, and Wagner um, was a, a theorist of church growth. He was very obsessed with church growth and using social science data to help the church grow. Um, and he was an evangelical, but he became increasingly fixated in the 1990s with ideas of spiritual warfare, with um, some of the, the, the goings on at the time in what we would call in scholarly circles, the independent charismatic world. So these are this kind of the, the cousin movement to Pentecostalism, so it's, but it's non-denominational. So this very amorphous, non-denominational charismatic space and rumors and ideas and theologies have been circulating in that area, in that, that realm of American Christianity for a very long time about this idea of renewed apostles and prophets who would come back and lead the church into the 21st century and into a global revival. And this became Wagner's kind of central fixation was propelling forward this movement of um, charismatic apostles and prophets who would take over the church and then bring about a global revival. And he even came to believe that he himself was one of these apostles who was anointed by God with a special spiritual authority to gather other apostles, to build institutions for those apostles, and then to help them really take over the, the global church and to uh, bring about a transformation, an eschatological transformation in the life of the church. Now, it's interesting. Uh, you're an, a Fuller alum, huh? I am, yeah. Okay. Well, I have a long history and relationship there too uh, at, at Fuller. And so I was around when C. Peter Wagner was there. And when I saw him in your research, I was, I was really uh, – well, it was interesting. It was ironic because I didn't know him well, but I think I've met him at one point or another. He was in the church growth thing, a big thing at Fuller. But when did he start to become so far to the right in his politics and culture and all the rest? When did that happen after Fuller? Well, it actually started at Fuller. Um, in, in 1989, um, Wagner was at a prayer conference. There's actually a national day of prayer gathering, kind of a planning meeting. And he met a woman there named Cindy Jacobs. She was a generation younger than Wagner. Um, and she was already calling herself a prophet. And um, he was fascinated by her ideas, especially her ideas of using spiritual warfare to transform nations. And she really became the gateway person introducing him to this whole realm of apostles and prophets and using spiritual warfare to uh, uh, transform societies, to take over societies. Um, and it really started pulling him into these, these con this whole different conceptual universe. But he, he, he stayed at Fuller for another decade after that. He retired from Fuller in 1999 to go and really build these new apostolic reformation structures and institutions. But he was integrating a lot of this stuff into his Fuller courses. He even had Cindy Jacobs and other um, early NAR leaders come and lecture in his courses at Fuller. And it was actually at a Fuller symposium called the, the Symposium on the Post-Denominational Church in 1996. And in a conversation with Pastor Jack Hayford, a, a, a real lion of Pentecostalism, um, that this term, New Apostolic Reformation, was coined. So it was very much under the auspices of Fuller Seminary that the New Apostolic Reformation was born. And Fuller ultimately, uh, there, there was a lot of tension around Wagner at Fuller, who's a controversial professor. But he, uh, when he retired from, from Fuller, um, really set off on this other trajectory to go and build this thing that he had theorized while he was there. Well, I just had a long dinner last night with, with, with the new president of Fuller, uh, Dr. David Gopi. So it's very interesting how these connections are made. Let me ask you about these connections. I'm from the evangelical tradition, uh, Detroit Plymouth Brethren, they were. 
And so I know that evangelical world well, but these members of the new apostolic reformation are different from other conservative white evangelicals, such as mine that I grew up with. How are they different? It's not the same movement. They're connected evangelicals. White evangelicals voted for Donald Trump in large numbers, the most of any religious group. But how are they connected? How are they different? This independent charismatic sector of American Christianity, it has its own media. It has its own uh, television channels, its own social media networks. And so they, they, they didn't interface as much with what we could call establishment evangelicalism historically. They were seen as being kind of marginal and a little bit kooky. For, for much of this history. But um, as Wagner start, gets things started, he creates, um, start as he leaves Fuller in 1999, he creates a, a set of networked institutions. They're all under his leadership. Uh, he created a, a, a kind of networking space for these new apostles called the International Coalition of Apostles, um, where he, he gathered about 500 of these kind of uh, charismatic pastors who wanted to try out being apostles and believe that this was something that God had called them to. Um, and over the course of the 2000s, really around 2007 or 2008, it gets locked in this, this movement that originally started about transforming the church through these apostles and prophets and global revival became fixated with the idea of transforming society. And um, the, the, the signature idea that really drives this within the NAR is something called the Seven Mountain Mandate. And the idea of the Seven Mountain Mandate, um, which has its roots in other uh, even Reformed theology, uh, but really kind of takes on a new life with Lance Wall now and with the NAR. Uh, but the idea is that you can divide society up into seven different spheres of influence. The family, religion, government, education, media, and the arts, entertainment, and that the goal is for Christians to conquer every one of these mountains and have Christian influence flow down from the top of that mountain into society. So this is a very much a, a top-down takeover of society model of Christian influence. And Wagner kind of takes some of these ideas from Wallnow, and then they publicize these everywhere. Um, and they, there's just an explosion of conversation about the Seven Mountains idea all over the evangelical world, all over the charismatic world, starting around 2007, 2008. And just to, to illustrate the spread of this, um, a, a colleague and friend of mine named Paul Jupe, who's a sociologist, did a survey about a year ago. So this was in March of 2023. In, in this survey, he is a sample of all Americans and asked them this question about the Seven Mountains and said, do you agree that Christians need to stand atop of all of the Seven Mountains of influence in society? And gave some examples of the seven mountains. And more than 20% of Americans said they agree with that statement. Those are the numbers that you find if you're asking how many evangelicals are there, right? It's like around 20%. So these ideas have just spread all over the place. And, and Wallnow and Wagner became some of the first evangelicals to endorse Donald Trump using this seven mountains idea. And then they really led the NAR to become the vanguard of Christians supporting Donald Trump. And they, they were um, really insiders in this, this move to bring evangelicals, not just white evangelicals, but also evangelicals of color. The NAR is fairly multi-ethnic into league with Donald Trump and to become some of the most ardent cohorts of his supporters. So this uh, seven mountain strategy is pretty big. And I think a lot of our listeners here will have not heard of this before. Uh, two questions. This sounds to me like a recent form, a modern form of dominionist uh, theology, the dominionist tradition. How are they planning to conquer all of these mountains? 
it, so this is very much related to Dominion theology. Um, what we talk about today is Dominion theology um, really gets its start in the 1960s, 1970s in this group of reformed theologians, Calvinist theologians called the Reconstructionists, centered around uh, Russus John Rush Duny. Um, but those ideas actually cross-pollinate with this independent charismatic world in the 1980s. The Reconstructionists speak at a number of uh, charismatic conferences and very intentionally target these charismatic networks to embrace some of these Dominion theology ideas. And Dominion theology is rooted in uh, Genesis chapter one, where God gives the newly created woman and man dominion over the earth. But the idea coming out of Rush Dooney that then many of these charismatics embrace is that dominion that Adam and Eve held gets lost when Adam and Eve sin. And it's taken over by Satan. And then Jesus restores humanity's dominion. And then the, the idea is Christians are supposed to take dominion over societies. And so this is in many ways kind of the, the, the seedbed out of which the seven mountains emerges. So the seven mountains is kind of a particular charismatic form of dominion theology. And the, the way that Walnow talks about how this is supposed to happen is that you need to get Christians or leaders who are sympathetic to Christians, to the top of every mountain. Because in Walnow's theology and Wagner's theology, either the kingdom of Satan possesses the top of every one of the cultural mountains, or the kingdom of God does. It's, it's, it's total binary. And so in their view, through spiritual warfare, through prophecy, but also through practical organizing and through leveraging Christian leaders in positions of influence, Christians are supposed to take over each one of these seven mountains. And, and Walnut would even use the language of colonizing and say Christians are called, they're sent to bring the culture of heaven and colonize the earth with the culture of heaven. And that the kingdom of God needs to reign supreme in every society. And he would say there's those seven mountains are in every society and that Christians should then strategize for how to dominate every one of these areas of influence, every one of these areas of culture, so that the kingdom of God can be realized in any given society. I would say that translation from the Genesis text is based on some misinterpretation, mistranslation. The word dominion, uh, it it also could mean stewardship, and stewardship is different than dominion. And uh, I've been writing about how the idea of we were to be stewards of God's creation and God's rule over the earth was to be, we would be more like that, which is a servant king, not the one who takes over and, and imposes and enforces. So there's a mistranslation going on that's important in that Genesis text. But this is a very uh, powerful uh, new movement that people need to know more about. For example, a lot of talk was in 2016 about Donald Trump and the evangelicals was about the Faustian bargain that many of them made with Trump. Uh, almost a transactional relationship. But in your writing, in your research on this group, it's less, as I read it, not just transactional, it's more messianic. This is not just a transaction with a power broker. This is all tied into language of apostles and and uh, people who are prophets. And, and now the language for Trump is more messianic from these folks than transactional. He is even an apostle, you were saying, and some of this stuff. So that transition from transaction to messianic, I was wondering what you feel about that. Yeah, I would say there were many evangelicals who, for whom it was transactional. 
Um, but part of what happened, and this story has not been widely told in um, the media, but I, I get into it in my book. Donald Trump has had a long-standing relationship with a woman named Paula White. Paula White is a televangelist. She came up in some of these independent charismatic and black Pentecostal circles. And Paula White and Donald Trump have had a, a, a friendship. She would even call herself his pastor for the past 20 years. And so when Donald Trump starts to um, gear up, and he declares his uh, candidacy for presidency in the summer of 2015. He asked Paula White to be his point of interface with evangelicals. And the problem is that Paula White doesn't know the mainstream evangelical leaders, right? She is in this independent, charismatic, kind of marginal televangelism world. And so she, in the fall of 2015, really starts bringing in the people that she knows, televangelists, messianic rabbis, charismatic apostles, charismatic prophets. And one of the people that she brings in in the fall of 2015 to some of these meetings in Trump Tower is Lance Walnut, this guy who's got this idea of the, the seven mountain mandate. And he claims that while he is meeting with Trump in these um, uh, Trump Tower meetings, that he receives a revelation from God that um, and he, God uh, appoints him to Isaiah chapter 45 which is the passage about the Persian emperor Cyrus in uh, the prophet Isaiah. And that God tells Lance Wall now that um, Donald Trump is a wrecking ball to the spirit of political correctness and that God wants to make Donald Trump president so that Donald Trump can be a Cyrus. Right. And if you if you know your Hebrew Bible, right, that's a that, that is a loaded image because Cyrus is the Persian emperor who, when the Jews are in exile in Babylon, Cyrus is the emperor of the Persians and he conquers the Babylonian empire. And he's the one who sends the Jewish people back from exile. But if you go and read Isaiah 45, the language that is used about Cyrus um, is that there's an acknowledgement that he is this heathen emperor. He's not a Jew. He's not a person who follows God, but God anoints Cyrus for this purpose. And the language that's used there is messianic, right? Cyrus is a, a messianic figure in that he is called anointed by God. That's what, that's what Messiah means, the anointed one. And so this, this image becomes one of the central rationales, this idea that Donald Trump has a, has a Cyrus anointing, becomes one of the central theological propaganda rationales for why Christians should support Donald Trump. And um, Walnow and Wagner really amplify this and enlist a lot of the other NAR leaders in using, I, I call this a, a prophetic meme. It's not, it's not quite theology. It's not exegesis necessarily, but it's using this kind of idea of charismatic prophecy to illumine, they would say, this passage from Isaiah 45 and apply it to Donald Trump. And even today, this is still one of the core rationales that you'll find Christians using for Donald Trump. He's not a good Christian, but he's, he's our heathen emperor that God has anointed to protect Christians and bring us back from cultural exile. So this becomes more than transactional, the Faustian bargain with the tough guy who will help get our stuff through. They see Donald Trump as almost a biblical figure. Absolutely. In fact, there, there's a fascinating quote. Um, there was a New York Times piece that, that came out just before the uh, Iowa caucuses. Times reporters were going around talking to um, Iowa evangelicals to find out why they were supporting Trump. And one of, the, one of the evangelicals gave this quote to the New York Times. She said, Trump is our David and our Goliath. And that, I mean, that, that's another way of framing the Cyrus image. Right, because Cyrus is—he's—he's he's messianic. He's anointed by God, like David, but he's also a brutalist. He's also a, a, a heathen emperor who massacres his enemies. And so, this idea that Donald Trump can be simultaneously sacred and profane—that Donald Trump can be simultaneously an instrument of God and also this vulgar 
destructive, chaotic figure is in many ways the bargain that evangelicals have made with Trump. But for Walnow and, and for Wagner and for these other NAR leaders, it's theological and it's prophetic that they support Trump. So it's not, it's not just they're not holding their nose and supporting Trump. They, they believe that there is a divine anointing on Trump to accomplish certain purposes. And they would say many of those purposes were accomplished in the first term and that God has anointed Trump for another term. So that messianic theology is now drawing to a very right-wing political agenda. Absolutely. Back on this uh, seven mountain mandate. So they want to put leaders, business leaders in that sector and government leaders. They want them to win elections or they want to win battles as CEOs. Um, what's the role, however, of violence? Um, I'm going to get to, uh, to January 6th, and you talk a lot about that in your research. How explicit or implicit is the threat of political violence among the new apostolic reformation? Is it part of their theology? I would say that violence is part of their theology. They wouldn't, they wouldn't frame it as political violence per se. They um, are very fixated on this idea of spiritual warfare. And one of the things that Cindy Jacobs and, and um, Peter Wagner and these other figures start to develop in the 1990s is a framework that, that Wagner calls strategic level spiritual warfare. I mean, many, many Christians believe in spiritual warfare. It's just the idea that there are these unseen forces around us, angels and demons that are battling for control over the world or for influence in the world, and um, that Christians can participate in those battles through prayer, through spiritual disciplines, right? These are, these ideas are very common in evangelicalism and Pentecostalism, even parts of Catholicism. But this idea that Wagner brings forward of strategic level spiritual warfare is that you can create campaigns of spiritual warfare. If you can organize massive networks of prophets and apostles and intercessors, you can co combat the hierarchical demons that they imagine possess the world. And so Wagner would talk about there are territorial spirits. And he's getting this idea out of the book of Ephesians. Uh, but he would say those are high-ranking demons that, can, that, that rule over actual physical territory and over human institutions. And the only way to displace those territorial spirits is through these organized campaigns of spiritual warfare. And Wagner and Jacobs and others would, would come to call the apostles and prophets generals. Of spiritual warfare. In fact, Jacobs leads a, an organization called Generals International, just used to be called Generals of Intercession. And the idea is they direct these campaigns of spiritual warfare. And what they do as they're supporting Donald Trump um, is, is they orchestrate these campaigns of spiritual warfare around Donald Trump in the 2016 election throughout the, the Trump administration. And then these campaigns really ramp up before January 6th. And I would argue we're one of the main factors in organizing and gathering Christians for January 6th was this idea that, that Christians need to do spiritual warfare to, to overturn the election, to put Donald Trump back in office. And Cindy Jacobs and Lance Wallnow and a number of other NAR leaders actually show up on January 6th after mobilizing their followers to be there to participate in this spiritual warfare during the Capitol riot. So you talk a lot about the Capitol riot, January 6th. And a lot of these people were there. You report on a two-hour meeting of uh, eight days before the Capitol insurrection at the White House between 15 new apostolic Reformation leaders and the members of the Trump administration. But what do we know? What do we know about that meeting and whether these Christians were involved in helping to plan or rally support for the riot of January 6th? So part of the backstory here centers on a figure named Dutch Sheets. 
Um, Sheets was a partner with Wagner and Jacobs in the 1990s, organizing these prayer campaigns, organizing networks of what they would call strategic intercessors. And um, Dutch Sheets became one of the major figures in the NAR, a, a, a disciple of Peter Wagner's. He, like many of the, the core leaders, called Wagner his apostle and his spiritual father. And um, in, in 2013, Dutch Sheets is participating in a, um, a graduation ceremony at Christ for the Nations Institute, where he was the executive director at the time. And he's given a flag. This flag has, um, it's a, a white flag with a green pine tree at the center of it. It has the phrase, an appeal to heaven across the top of the flag. And um, this is a, a, actually a revolutionary war flag. It comes out of, um, it was commissioned by um, George Washington actually to fly over the Massachusetts Navy. And you'll still sometimes see it in like revolutionary war reenactments. But Sheets believes through prophecy that this flag is a symbol of a, a prophetic and spiritual warfare revolution that needs to occur in America to recapture America, to bring America back into alignment with what he thinks is its prophetic destiny of being a Christian nation. And he starts rolling out this Appeal to Heaven campaign. He writes a book about the Appeal to Heaven flag and starts showing it everywhere that he goes. And so this becomes kind of one of the, the symbols of, of Sheets's theology and his ideas and really becomes kind of a core NAR symbol. And um, as uh, Sheets is, is rolling all this out, of course, this is 2013, it ramps up in 2015. And this, this flag becomes attached to Donald Trump and to these prophecies about Donald Trump. And so right after the 2020 election gets called for Joe Biden, Dutch Sheets had a number of connections inside the White House and inside the Trump administration. He had been um, invited into the White House a number of times during the, the Trump administration. And he never says who, but he says that he goes to Washington, D.C. and meets with people who are inside the Trump administration. This is in November of 2020. And he says they tell him, why don't you go to every one of the contested states and take apostles and prophets and do massive prayer meetings to do spiritual warfare there to try to turn this election towards Donald Trump? And Sheets does this. He gathers a team of about 15 to 20 of these apostles and prophets, and they go uh, day after day to different ones of the swing states, hold these massive prayer gatherings where they, they have more than 100,000 people live streaming these gatherings um, at, in, in this late November, early December of 2020. And the rhetoric that occurs in these among these prophets in these prayer meetings that are being broadcast to hundreds of thousands of charismatic Christians is incredibly violent. And they're talking about cutting the heads off their enemies spiritually. They're talking about mobilizing militias for the kingdom of God spiritually, right? And so they're, they're, they're using this rhetoric of violence. And then um, one of the members of Sheet's team believed that he got a dream shortly after Christmas in 2020 and that, that was calling the, the team to go to Washington, D.C. And they assembled in Washington, D.C. on December 29th on very short notice. And they have a, a two-hour meeting in the White House with Trump administration officials. Again, we don't know which Trump administration officials, but we know that they were in the Eisenhower Executive Office building right next to the White House. We know that there were 15 of the team members from of Dutch Sheets' team who were there. And I argue in, in my book that Dutch Sheets was the most effective mobilizer of Christians for January 6th. And we, we know about this meeting. We know that he was doing that in league and in, in, in consultation with people inside the White House who were seemingly orchestrating and, and, and using these, these efforts by Dutch Sheets to propel Christians towards January 6th. So these appeal to heaven flags were all over the Capitol insurrection, right? Absolutely. There, I mean, it's very hard to get a comprehensive picture of what happened that day. I've spent months going through the data of, of January 6th. There were at least dozens of appeal to heaven flags that day, um, probably into the hundreds. So I'm going to be saying all this year, 
that the best way to defeat these movements, which I call movements of bad religion, is with good faith or true faith, not just politics and partisan attacks. So just as they misappropriated, misinterpreted the Genesis text from stewardship to dominion, also Ephesians 6, uh, if we want to look at that, um, I want our listeners to read Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. It talks about we wrestle not against just flesh and blood, but 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 powers, spiritual powers uh, in heaven. The spiritual warfare against principalities and powers, the New Testament talks about. It does talk about that. But when it lists the weapons uh, that are being offered to fight spiritual battles, uh, Paul says, put on the whole armor of God. And here's the weapons he names. Truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, the hope of our salvation, the word of God, and prayer. Now, these are different weapons than the ones being advocated by this movement. Yeah. And it, one of the things that, that Wagner and his inner circle really develop is not just this vocabulary of spiritual violence, but they develop a, a, what they would call strategies of spiritual violence and weapons of spiritual warfare. So one of those weapons is the shofar, which is a, it's a ram's horn. Um, it originates in Jewish liturgical usage. It's used um, in, in synagogues around the high holidays as, as part of the ritual. But the, um, the leaders of the New Apostolic Reformation come to believe that the shofar is a weapon of spiritual warfare. If you blow the shofar, that will summon the forces of heaven. And so this is part of why you see so many shofars surrounding the U.S. Capitol during the riot. They, they, they also tie this in with narratives about the Battle of Jericho. And if you remember the Battle of Jericho, right, the, the people of Israel sound the trumpets. They blow the shofars and the walls of Jericho come down. And so leading up to January 6th, there were many of these marches called Jericho marches. Um, they were occurring in the swing state capitals, but they were also the, the major one was in Washington, D.C. on December 12th, 2020. And Cindy Jacobs and Lance Wallnow both spoke at that at that um, uh, December uh, 12th, 2020 Jericho march. And even January 6th was cast as another Jericho march. And, and, and this is part of why you have Christians marching around the Capitol during the riot, because they believe that, the, that there were spiritual entities, these territorial spirits who had taken over the Capitol and that they, through their prayers, through their shofar blow, through their apostolic decrees, could dethrone those territorial spirits and swing the election back to Donald Trump. Here's the question I have then, then that there are people that hold these views and who will vote according to these views, even if they're theologically uh, ridiculous or, or distorted or even manipulative. But at the Capitol, what you're talking about is people taking their flag, their appeal to heaven flag, and stabbing police with it. That's a different kind of thing. One thing to have these views and vote accordingly, but then you have to win elections. Well, January 6th wasn't just win elections, it was overturn an election and restore a tyrant to power and call him to use the Insurrection Act to declare martial law. So the role of violence here is still something I wanna understand better for them. Voting the way they do because of their beliefs is one thing, and all Americans are doing some of that. But their flag was used to attack police. And when you've answered that, the next question is, who has this flag outside their office in the House of Representatives? So part of what I try to argue in my book um, is there, the, when, when, when you talk to people who specialize in outbursts of political violence, uh, scholars who study these things, they will say that when you see 
political violence like we saw on January 6th, at that outward manifestation, that outburst is really just the tip of an iceberg. Because there, there has to be a mass movement of violent ideation, violent rhetoric, violent um, endorsement to lead to that sort of an outburst. And so part of what I'm trying to, to, to show through this research is that iceberg was formed by Christians, by Christian theologians, by Christian leaders, especially the NAR. And what happened was that in their minds, they did not participate in violence. All they did was pray. All they did was do spiritual warfare. But they constantly pointed at the Democrats, at the disloyal Republicans from their perspective, and at the Capitol and said, these places, these people are filled with demons. And we have to fight the demons. And the rational next step, if you are constantly pointing at a group of people and saying they are just vehicles for demonic powers, is people are going to attack them. And that's what we see happening on January 6th, is that you have the, the, the rhetoric of spiritual warfare that got amped up to the highest level that then tips over into physical warfare. So Mike Johnson, the Speaker of the House, uh, is part of this movement in all kinds of ways, as you point out. And yesterday, when there was a discussion in the media about Donald Trump's potential running mates, they named the people we've heard about being talked about, but then they said, oh, and Mike Johnson. Oh, and Mike Johnson. Now, Mike Johnson being the vice president uh, in a Trump presidency uh, brings all your research uh, to dangerous life here. Yeah. Well, and and, and I, I just to, to observe, I, I don't know if Mike Johnson would be more dangerous to the United States as the vice presidential candidate or as the speaker for the House. Right. Because if he's speaker of the House, let, let's let's play it out. Right. What, what happens this year in, in the 2024 election? There are three possible outcomes. Donald Trump wins, in which case, from my perspective, I think American democracy may never recover from a second Trump term. Or Donald Trump loses. And Donald Trump is constitutionally unable in his own kind of makeup to accept defeat. And so almost inevitably, he's going to fight again, like we saw in 2020, and claim the election was stolen from him. In that case, Mike Johnson, as Speaker of the House, would be in an incredible position to substantiate and give credibility to these lies from Donald Trump. Nancy Pelosi was Speaker of the House in 2020. That did not happen in 2020. But imagine how much chaos he could sow in that role. The third possibility is the election is so close that it doesn't get called, like it ha- like happened in 2000. And then the, the country is in an incredible amount of chaos. So I, I deeply am worried that we are moving through this year of 2024 towards an almost inevitable constitutional crisis at the end of this year. And Mike Johnson is, is right now positioned in one of the most dangerous spots he could possibly be in. Well, we had a, we convened a retreat for a very broad group of faith leaders on how this uh, election is a test of democracy, but also a test of faith. And we ran through all those three scenarios of what faith communities and leaders should do if and when that happens. And, and uh, we've not had this I had Rachel Kleinfeld on this uh, podcast, and she's one of the scholars best on political violence. And we haven't had this threat, in my view, since uh, really the Civil War, and and this may produce another Civil War. And what faith leaders do in those scenarios is critical, and we'll be talking about that all year. Now, I've got two final questions here. Uh, You mentioned race, and I want to go back to that. So the Pentecostal movement in this country uh, and around the world began with black Christians, the Azusa movement in Los Angeles went around the world and white Pentecostals broke off from what was a black birthed and led movement for a long time. 
And so uh, black evangelicals today are very different from white evangelicals and black Pentecostals are very different from a lot of white charismatic movement people. So what is the role of race uh, for these people, these movement people who you call the Christian nationalists? What's the role of race here? And how is that a factor, a figure, a motivation, a core to their movement? So as you're saying, the um, Pentecostal charismatic movements, these are global movements, right? So we're, we're not we're not simply talking about the United States when we're talking about Pentecostals and charismatics. Um, this is maybe the most ethnically diverse corner of American Christianity. I mean, Catholicism is very ethnically diverse, but at least within American Protestantism, the charismatics, especially these non-denominational charismatic circles are very multi-ethnic, not just black and white, but also Latino, Latina, Asian American, even Native American. Um, folks who participate in these circles. And from the start, the New Upstock Reformation has been pretty multi-ethnic. Um, one of the major leaders um, of the NAR who was there on January 6th, who spoke at a rally on January 5th, um, is a, a man named Che On. He's Korean American. He actually uh, immigrated to the U.S. as, as a child. Um, and he leads a, a massive uh, multi-ethnic megachurch in Pasadena, California. Um, he's also a Fuller Seminary alum. And, um, and he, he gave this apostolic declaration the day before January 6th in Washington, D.C. at this rally saying, we are going to rule and reign through Donald Trump and under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And from this day forward, the United States will be a red nation, by which he meant a Republican nation. So there are, an, a, and in fact, many of the evangelicals of color who were in Trump's advisory circles came out of the New Apostolic Reformation or, or other independent charismatic circles. Many of them are apostles and prophets. So part of the way that the Trump campaign and Trump administration seemed to leverage some of these um, evangelicals of color was through these independent charismatic and apostolic circles and drawing these folks in and, and using them and their credibility in their circles to campaign there. Um, and when Trump launched his 2020 Evangelicals for Trump um, campaign, he actually did it at the, the, the church of one of his advisors named Guillermo Maldonado, another NAR apostle, who has a, a, a bilingual church in Miami that's about 15,000 people uh, that is uh, one service in English, one service in Spanish. And so Trump's main appeal is to white evangelicals, but he also is speaking to especially some of the Latino, Latina, Pentecostal and charismatic circles, some of the Asian American charismatic circles, the black Pentecostal and black charismatic circles have tended to be more outposts of resistance to Donald Trump, um, even within that world where almost everyone is, is going to Trump. Um, and there is racism that is, is, is present in these circles, there, there is, but it's, it's a complicated sort of racism. It's the sort of racism that you find in multi-ethnic churches and multi-ethnic movements um, where it's, it, it doesn't map neatly onto the, the overt forms of racism that we tend to think of. It's more this kind of instrumentalization of leaders of color um, as, as a means of reaching the, out to those communities. And I think we have to grapple with the reality that Donald Trump is not only appealing to white evangelicals. He's also appealing to evangelicals of color and some sometimes more successfully than others. Well, those are, as you know, very different constituencies. And in the black churches, uh, which have been uh, outposts, as you say, of resistance to the agenda of Donald Trump. For example, a Church of God in Christ, Kojic, is a huge black church. It's Pentecostal. And their agenda is very different from uh, the right-wing agenda of Donald Trump. And those people, you say it's not always overt. It's pretty overt if uh, the Republican Party is strategically aimed, uh, as the North Carolina court said, surgically targeted black voter suppression. So here are these churches 
and they want the votes of black brothers and sisters in Christ suppressed. That's very overt. So we're part of uh, Barbara Skinner and I and others, a part of this campaign, uh, Face United Save Democracy, in key states where voter suppression is most going on. And uh, black clergy are leads in all that. It's multiracial, multi-faith, and multi-generational. But Christians have to ask the question, as you pointed out, this is an anti-democratic movement. It's anti-democracy. I would say its values are anti-Christ. But are these people in favor of voter suppression and targeting voter suppression at black church members? I think if you ask them, they would probably say no. But then again, they are often willing to go along with and even theologize things that Trump does. So they might say, oh, it's just about election integrity, which is a phrase they have lovingly adopted since January 6th, which means the exact opposite of what, of what it means, right? We know that's a lie. And I think some of them know it's a lie. And so I think black churches are going to be core to uh, the Christian opposition to this agenda that Donald Trump putting four forward. And so the fact that they found a few people here and there, and by the, by the way, the movement toward Trump in Hispanic and black circles is almost all black men, Hispanic men, and black women have a very different view. So there's a battle going on there, but I think race is absolutely core to uh, the, the movement and the agenda that Donald Trump is putting forward. I think movements, every movement has to decide who they can persuade and who they must defeat. So I'm really going to be doing a lot with colleagues around the country to go after uh, persuadable white Christians um, to try and see how they're caught, they're stuck. They might even not know the term white Christian nationalism, but they're stuck in it. They're captivated by so much of that for the reasons that you have pointed out in this conversation. But so we got to do everything we can to try and persuade those people caught in bad religion with better faith, good faith. But those who won't be persuaded have to be defeated at the ballot box. Nonviolently, but they have to be politically defeated. How do we, what's your sense of how persuadable some of these people are and how they must be defeated? So in um, the fall of 2019, we had a number of, of um, shootings and attacks that occurred in congregations. Um, and I, I work at an interfaith institute. We work with Jews and Muslims and Christians in Baltimore. And so we, we convened a gathering of, it was, it was almost entirely Jewish and Christian, of, of clergy to talk about these attacks that were going on in um, these congregations and how congregations can think about safety. And we had a, a, a friend and colleague of mine there who actually is in this independent charismatic world. He's an African-American bishop over a network of churches, of mostly uh, non-denominational churches, and charismatic and, and uh, Pentecostal folks. And um, so we're having this conversation, this, this kind of dinnertime conversation all together about congregational safety and shootings. And, and my friend, the bishop get, gets up and he says, you know, I, people in my congregation are not worried about um, attacks on our congregation. We're black people who live in Baltimore. We deal with violence every day. Do you know what people in my congregation are worried about and might be losing their faith over? Paula White. And I said, <laughs> Bishop, what, what do you what do you mean? What tell tell me more? Why, why Paula White? And he said, Paula White came up in Black Pentecostalism. She came up. She was mentored by T.D. Jakes. My the people in my congregation have been watching her for years and looking to her as a leader. And she just got a job in the White House, and she is working for that man. And the the level of betrayal that they experience 
is 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 devastating to them. It, it is causing a real crisis of faith. So yeah, race is layered into all of this stuff, right? And I I totally agree with you. I think that um, historically Christians of color have been the outposts of resistance to Christian Trumpism, and I deeply deeply hope that they'll continue to play that role in 2024. To your, to your question about persuasion and defeat, yeah, it's when, when I'm speaking about this stuff, I I try to make three points to audiences, whether they are um, Christian or not. And I speak to a lot of non-Christian audiences about this as well. First, I think we need to spread the word about the real, real danger that this Christian nationalism and Christian supremacy are playing. These folks are not, they're not playing around. If you need any more evidence, January 6th proves the real danger of these theologies and these, these prophecies and these attachments, these messianic and mystical attachments to Donald Trump that have, that have taken hold in huge swaths of American Christianity. These are very dangerous things and we need to spread the word about that. The second point is we need to have dialogue across the, the political lines in American Christianity. As you, you've, you've mentioned a couple of times um, the Civil War. Uh, in my evaluation, I don't think American Christianity has been this divided theologically, politically, regionally, epistemically since the eve of the Civil War. And, and, and those are not easy conversations. <laughs> don't believe me. I, I do interfaith dialogue for a living. These are not easy conversations, but we desperately need Christians to talk to other Christians. And to talk about the assumptions that Christians are making about Donald Trump. And again, not not to persuade people that they need to completely change their identity, completely change their theology, but just to humanize the other side and say, okay, you like Donald Trump. Do you realize the consequences for your Jewish neighbors, for your atheist neighbors, for your Muslim neighbors, if this sort of Christian supremacy takes hold? Do you realize the real world human consequences of this election? The third point is we need to get ready to defend democracy. And I mean that not just in voting, but if you are somebody who doesn't vote, you need to vote this year. If you're somebody who doesn't typically write to or contact your congressional representatives, you need to have their contact information at the ready. And if you're not somebody who typically goes out to protests, you need to figure out where is the bright line for you? What is, what is that line that if it gets crossed by political actors, you'll show up and protest? Part of the reason that things got so out of hand in that season between the 2020 election and January 6th is that Trump's people were mobilizing. Trump's people were showing up in the streets and there weren't really that many counter protesters. There weren't people standing up for American democracy in the streets. And I fear, and I I predict that we will need to get there this year. We will need to be ready to stand in the streets, to stand for democracy, to stand for the rule of law, to stand for American pluralism and say, we're better than this as a nation. Well, amen to all that. And I think, um, uh, the way to both persuade and even defeat uh, people in these movements where necessary is to talk faith, is to bring faith back in, bring Jesus back in. And so the more, more we, we can be a different kind of faith factor, the faith factor has to be very clear here. And then it's got to be practical. And so for those who want to do what you just said we should do, people should go to turnoutsunday.com, turnoutsunday.com. Face United to Save Democracy is what you work on every day. It's Christian. It's Jewish. It's Muslim. It's all that. And more and more, it's multi-generational. So we have to be clear in our theology and very practical in, in our action. So you're helping us do that. I really appreciate your research and this conversation. So uh, we'll be seeing each other a lot this year, my friend. So thank you for your work and thank you for your voice. 
And thank you for your witness and for our conversation today. Well, I, I hope we get to see a lot of each other, Jim. And let me just say, I deeply appreciate the work that you are doing. And um, I think we're, we're in this together and we need people of good faith, whether they're religious faith or not, people of good faith to stand in the gap this year. For more Soul of the Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. And follow me on Twitter at Jim Wallace if you like. Blessings for the soul of a nation. Thank you all.